and welcome to this edition of the Making Theatre podcast. My name is Bruno Poet. And my name is James Farncombe, and we are freelance lighting designers. This time, we got a little lost in the rabbit warren backstage and ended up in the prop store. Surrounded by random curiosities and ephemera from a multitude of plays and musicals, we found Lizzie Frankel, better known as Lizzie Props of Propworks. The props department are responsible for the details which breathe life into a set and make the world on stage believable, both for audience and actor. We caught up with Lizzie online from her office at Propworks to hear how it all comes together. Welcome Lizzie Frankel, or Lizzie Props. Should we call you by your professional name? Lizzie will do. <laughs> Hi Lizzie, it's great to see you. Thank you very much for joining us on this podcast. Thank you for having me. Could you start by telling us what's your job? What is your job? How do you describe yourself? Uh, so I'm, I kind of, I kind of describe myself having two jobs. My main job is as a prop supervisor. Um, so I would source, supply, have made every prop piece of set dressing, furnishing that be required in shows. But I also run a props company. Um, uh, so I'm a company director of PropWorks, uh, and I work as a prop supervisor for PropWorks, but I'm also the company director so how did all this begin? What was your first experience of theatre? I grew up in Manchester. I remember doing a couple of school plays, I suppose, would be my first experience of theatre. And I think in my first ever school play, I was cast as an umpa And I was really bad at being an umpa <laughs> even though I was conveniently the right shape. I didn't enjoy it. I wasn't very good. I couldn't sing. I couldn't dance. I couldn't act. And I think it was a mutual decision between me and my teachers to take me out of the next school play. <laughs> I then remember, and I must have been about, I don't know, I think it was primary school. So I don't know, under 10, something like that. Yeah. And my job then became, I, I was promoted from Umpa Lumpa to making sure that the, the cast got to the school hall on time for their line or their dance, which I suppose was a stage manager. Yeah. At 10. Exactly. (laughs) The next experience would have been when I was about maybe 14, something like that, and to try and keep me out of trouble. I mean, my mum would have tried anything to keep me out of trouble. She sent me to um, a a local youth group. Mm. And by then, of course, I was very confident in my lack of acting, dancing, singing skills. So I was never going to be... I was never going to be on stage. So I helped, uh, I remember, help, I don't know how I how I got in there, but I remember there was a fantastic woman called Lindy Margolis who uh, ran the costume element of getting uh, these youth theatre shows on in, in youth civic centres and so on. And I helped her um, gather all the costumes and get everybody in and out of the costumes during the musical or whatever show it was that we were putting on in the youth group. And it, I enjoyed it. It kept me out of trouble. It certainly was yeah. the right place for me to be. It wasn't on stage, but backstage. And I really yeah. enjoyed it. I liked listening to music and helping out, being very useful. And then that was sort of it. I never really thought about theatre after that. Mm. It was just something my mum had done to keep me out of trouble. And then about when I was 18 or 19, I was working full time in a bar restaurant in Salford Keys, which is opposite the Lowry Theatre. Yeah. And I had absolutely no idea who I was, what I wanted to be, what I was going to be. It felt like the rest of the world did. And my mum's a pharmacist and my dad's an accountant. And I knew I wasn't going to be either of those two things. So I was just working in a restaurant, doing some money and find out about myself. Yeah. And these crew guys used to come in at the end of the night around 10, 11 p.m. 
these guys, I didn't know their crew at the time, they came in, they were dressed completely in black and they all had probably a mag light and a Leatherman on their tool belt, you know, which I didn't really know what they were at the time. I was yeah. like, just tools. Yeah, crew uniform. And crew, exactly. And one night I said to a guy later, found out his name was Stuart, later became a friend of mine. I was like, what do you, what do you lot do? You know, all coming in your black clothes, or your tools on your belt. <laughs> and he said, uh, we work at the theatre. I said, what do you mean you work at the theatre? No one works in a theatre. He was like, yeah, we, you know, he's head of stage and lighting technician was next to him. And I was like, what, like a real job, not just a hobby. And he said, yeah. And I was like, I was, I was stunned. I couldn't believe I was talking to people that work and get paid to be in a theatre. So I must have expressed an interest. And he said to me, come and meet the technical manager, Phil. And I was quite gobby. Well, I still am quite gobby. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'll do that. So the next day or a couple of days later, he took me in to meet the technical manager and I had a chat with him and maybe I mentioned, I don't remember, but maybe I mentioned I'd done, you know, a bit of costume on my youth theatre club. And he offered me two jobs as a dresser on um, the first one on Matthew Bourne's Nutcracker Mm. and the second one on Birmingham Royal Ballet's Beauty and the Beast. And I did it. I went in, I gave up my job in the the restaurant and I went in and... um, uh, I was taught by Mary, who was head of wardrobe, how to iron properly. Yeah. With a, you know, with a line down the sleeve for the opera, and and I suddenly was in a building filled with quirky people mm. and interesting people and excited people and l- love and laughter and life like I'd never experienced before, and for me to be paid to be there was. It, it blew my mind. I, I couldn't believe that I didn't, I hadn't known about it sooner. So I think at that point, I realised that's where I was born to be. Wow. I think you beautifully summed up the kind of the magic that has appealed to so many of us. And when we got into that theatrical world for the first time and thought maybe mm. this is, and understood that maybe this is something we could actually do as a career. So how did you go from um, wardrobe to props? I continued working in Manchester. I did some work at the Contact Theatre and uh, as a dresser, uh, and I did some work at the Royal Exchange. And I remember when I got to Royal Exchange thinking, yes, I'm really making steps here because my grandma and grandpa have a season ticket. And I was suddenly able to make them proud by being <laughs> at the Royal Exchange, Manchester. Um, and I remember my when I got the job, it was on Great Expectations, and I was Una Stubbs' dresser for Great Expectations at the Exchange. But my first day of work, I was was to watch the dress rehearsal. Um, I wasn't needed before then, so I was, you know, wasn't needed for rehearsals or anything like that. Um, so I came in to watch the dress rehearsal, and I was sat in the in the um, circle, and I think something happened, and we they stopped the dress, and this woman came rushing out and onto stage to fix a problem, and she's very efficient, and I just was like, whoa, what's she doing? Who is she? And um, she was the stage manager, Jill, and. Um, I was very interested in what she was doing. I thought she handled her job brilliantly. She got to work with the set, the people, she, you know, the director was talking directly to her. And um, I thought, yeah, I want to do that. That's that's what I want to do. I found the right, I found my people, I found my home, but that job is, is what I want to do. Um, and she later said to me, you have to go to drama school to do what I do. You can't, because I said, like, how do I be a stage manager? You know, I'm a dresser now, how do I be a stage manager? You've got to go to drama school. And I thought, well, I've got no hope. I was never very good at school. And sending me to a school at whatever I was then, 19 or 20, didn't appeal. 
but I had nothing else to do. I wasn't going to progress with what I was doing it, it, to be a stage manager, I didn't feel. Um, so I did apply and I applied to RADA because I'd heard of it and that was it. I, did, I hadn't heard of other drama schools so that I only applied to that one. Yeah. And they offered me an interview and my mum took me down on the train. I've been to London a couple of times as a kid, but it was a big deal, you know, to, even mm. though I'm a city girl, it was a big deal to go to London Mum took me down and she dropped me off at RADA and she went off for a coffee and I went in for my interview and I came out and I was like, oh, mum, I flunked it. She said, what do you mean? I said, no, I was, ter- I was too honest. You know, as you can tell, I like to talk. So I did in my interview and I talked yeah. a lot and I told them all the things I'd messed up on in my life and why theatre was for me. Yeah. And I just thought, no, it's not going to happen. So I went back to Manchester and a couple of weeks later, the post came offering me a place on their stage management and technical theatre course. And so I packed my bags and moved to London. Essentially, I, w- I wanted to ASM. I wanted to stage manage. So that's what that was my that was my end goal. Mm. I studied there for two years, and that course is set up that you do six weeks in every department in your first year. So mm. a bit of scenic art, a bit of prop making. Interestingly, I hated the prop making. That was my least favourite element of being right. at drama school. I got through the course, passed, and then got my first stage management job uh, on the back of that course. Yeah. I worked at ASM mostly regionally. I was working in, I actually, my first job was up in Bolton near where I was from and in Manchester. And now, and then I got offered my first ASM job in London at the John Mar. Yeah. Back down to London after leaving after college. Worked as an ASM, the Don Mar, the Royal Court, you know, it was fantastic. A couple of years later, I'd, I'd got my first West End gig. I think a lot of people starting theatre, don't they, and aim to be in the West End. Mm. And it came to me about two, about two years after I graduated. I was doing, um, I was ASM on Glengarry, Glen Ross. We go to the first day of rehearsals. We stand in the meet and greet, going around the room, who's who. And I say, hi, I'm Lizzie. I'm assistant stage manager. And we keep going around. And then all of a sudden someone goes, hi, I'm Lisa. I'm prop supervisor. And I was like, what? Why is there a prop supervisor? That's what I do. I'm the ASM. I get the props. And no one had really prepared me. I'd only ever done regional shows or I'd been at college or I'd been a dresser. No one had prepared me for when you get to the West End, there's more people and you spread the load. You know, you don't have to do four jobs at once, Lizzie. (laughs) And I was gutted because actually what I'd come to realise was the best, for me, the best bit about working on a show was finding all those really obscure things or making things that didn't exist. And so to find there was a whole person, essentially a whole department that was going to take that away from me I was devastated. So I thought I have to be her best friend. I have to be her best friend. I can't, I don't know what I do. I'll be bored. I guess James and I both grew up doing regional theatre and at that point it was ASMs who did all the props. And I think for me, I was quite surprised when suddenly there was a props department when you sort of got to a certain level of shows. And then when you go into yeah. some of the big theatres, there's not only a props person, there's a whole props workshops and a whole props team. And, you know, the whole props side of the business is totally taken away from stage management. Mm. So is that the point when you thought okay you sort of realized that props was the thing you enjoyed most about stage management and that's where you wanted to go as a career exactly not as a prop maker but certainly to find a job and a role that was all the skills of being an asm and then once it was open i could leave and move on to the next one and keep the momentum and keep the excitement that that's where where it really started to get exciting for me in in terms of a career yeah Mm. looking back on it does it now feel like a, a natural fit you personally do you do you have a fascination for the details in life the minutiae yeah definitely to be a good prop supervisor you've got to be organized and you've got to be creative so actually stage managers that can prop i think make really good prop supervisors 
it does feel a bit of a naturopath. I never really learned about prop supervisors at college or well, I was, obviously before then I hadn't ever heard of them. So it really wasn't until I met Lise that I was like, wow, that's a, that's a real job. It's a similar feeling, I suppose, to how I felt when Stuart came into the, the bar, line bar in, in Salford the Keys. You know, wow, what do you mean? That's a real that's job. And I've, I've, I stumbled upon it as opposed to went looking for it. Yeah. So going on from there, did you start, um, did you carry on ASME or did you move quite quickly into full-time? I moved fairly quickly. I, I remember going up to Lise and said, previously I'd, I'd only ever been a propping ASM. So um, if there's any way that I can help, you know, I'd love to keep involved. And it was Glengarry Glen Ross Act 2 is um, set in an American 60s or 70s police station. This particular design, uh, Anthony Ward, was completely filled, like absolutely rammed police station, every nook and cranny, whether it was the Dunkin' Donuts cup on his ta- on one of the cops' tables or, you know, a calendar of the time on the, on yeah. the wall, every, every minute detail. And what Lise, you know, in the end taught me was, was about the detail. And that's mm. really where she, you know, stands out of how detailed her sets are, you know, in terms of the, the filmic. You know, every actor believes they're in that, that space, whether the audience can see it or not. And because there was so much to do, and obviously I'm sure we were on a very limited budget, Lise kindly split the load, you know, or, or shared the load with me. So she yeah. was, I didn't t- really touch any of the furniture. That was what really, she knew what she was doing with that and was right up her street. But when it came to like the, the desk calendar or the pen or the ashtray, she was very happy for, for me to help and, and, and gather that stuff together. So she shared her job with me kindly. And, and between us, we got, um, I think, a fantastic looking show. Mm-hmm. Um and we we loved each other, you know. We got on so well. We had a laugh. It was it was it it, it can be quite isolating, I think, you know, working on your own. Mm. And so to have a buddy to do it with, and a, and especially in a creative role, you know, someone to go, what do you think of that? Or do you think you know? Do you think that's the right color? Or is that the right shape? Or is this seventies? You know, all those questions. It's yeah. so good to do with someone. And yeah, did you find you had to develop a, quite a wide knowledge of a range of different subjects? Because yeah. Because props just could could be could cover anything, couldn't they? Pretty anything, much? yeah. You still yeah. do. Like sixteen years, I've been doing pretty much between you know propping ASM up till now, mm-hmm. and I I learn on every single show, and yeah, I have to research. research. Yeah, yeah. I, I have shortcuts because there are things that repeat, you know, and there are periods that repeat or styles that repeat. From experience, you get I've gained more confidence. Mm. Um, but on every single show, I'll have to research, you know, and also I don't want to look like an idiot. You know, I don't want to show a design or something and, it, and, mm. and they go, that's not damask pattern. That's, you know, I, I, I just want, I want to know what I'm talking about. Yeah. 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 But you, your, your knowledge has obviously increased exponentially as time's gone on and, and presumably also the network of people that you can, you can call upon as well. You have to know who to ask if, if you don't know. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. And similarly, you must have, a, there's a huge range of skills involved in doing what you do. I mean, from everything from furniture building to, I don't know, uh, topiary or something, you know, that there's so many things that somebody could turn around and say, we need on this show. Yeah, the key for that is to know the right people, because it's impossible for little Lizzie to know everything. I like to think I know everything, but I know actually very little. And as a, as a prop supervisor, I think... I have to have lots of knowledge of different materials or timescales for manufacturing, things like that. Mm. But actually the key will be that that you've got the right specialists in the right place that you can call on. Mm. You're obviously sometimes looking for existing objects to buy or rent or borrow or whatever, but also quite often these things don't exist and you might have to make them. Or they do exist and you have to change them 
you, know, you have to dress them or distress them or or kind of rebuild them so they, they fit the production. Do you need to be able to do all that? How do you learn how to deliver those different things? Is that just experience or? I guess, yeah, I, I couldn't explain it, but I probably do have a process. I like to say Lisa taught me everything that I know about props and then I took it from there and continue. Hmm. She used to treat it in layers, you know, where you're faced with such a huge amount of varied props on a list, you know, that all have to do different things. And like you said, there's an element where you can buy, there's an element where you have to make, and there's an element where you buy and adapt a hybrid. And so every time I start a show, I'll start with the first layer, which for me is probably the most complicated, the most difficult to navigate and work out because it's going to take the longest. And I know that when it comes down to the pens, the four pens in the show and the eight handkerchiefs, I don't need to worry about them till the last layer because I'm going to find those very straightforward. But when, for instance, at the moment, we're building a, um, a metronome for the Armada and the metronome has to be automated and it has to work with MIDI. And so it's quite a tricky little thing to work out. And there's so many ways that you can make something and it depends on what it has to do, how, how long it has to go for, what the budget is, what the timescale is. And with the metronome, for instance, there's a version where you can buy something off the shelf and adapt it. There's the version where you can build it from scratch, completely manufacture it. And then there's the middle version, which I think is the one we've gone for, which is sort of buy the shell, rip it out and put a motor in. And that wasn't necessarily a budget decision or a time decision. It, it might be an efficient decision because mm. why manufacture the shell from scratch when there is something that exists, you have to try and navigate every possibility and come to an end conclusion. And it's not always the right one. You know, I always say that everything we do is a working prototype. It's very rare you put something on stage that you've put on stage before. Presumably that includes collaboration with a lot of different departments. Yeah, so something like that was, um, it's just that the metronomes are tricky props. They've handed that to a props company, I suppose. So in mm. this instance, I'm not being hired as a prop supervisor Propworks is being hired as a manufacturer, as a prop workshop. And so our first meeting was with the production manager, Tom, who's obviously overseeing it and, and displaying what he needs to do. Miriam, the, the designer, in terms of what it needs to look like. Meg was there, the ASM, because she, you know, she's going to be sort of operating it. Um, so she was there. And then following that, we had sound because it needs to work with MIDI. We've got the electricians because it's wireless. So there's essentially five departments plus props, so six departments that are looking after this one prop. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how proppy that show is, but if, if it was a show that I was supervising, we might have thousands of props. And that's one of them. And every single one might take or a lot of them might take the same dedication to processes and, and working out which makes for a lot of work, you know, and I don't think people know how much, even Emma, my partner who, who runs our studio here, she used to be a stage manager. And she said, until she actually came to work here, she had no idea what goes on mm. you know, for the prop, you know, to get those props on stage. Mm. Not, not a clue. I'm sure that's true. I think it's one of definitely one of those sort of hidden magical worlds where we see the end result, but we don't see any of the, the working to get it there. But I do think one of the most amazing moments in the theatre is um, the transformation that happens to some scenery. The sets arrives, it's been built, and it just feels like bits of scenery. And then the props department arrive, adding all the detail that the props can bring, whether it's the camera on the wall you talked about, the mug on the table, the, um, the desk, the chair, all that sort of stuff, suddenly inhabits the space and transforms it. So there's a big element of your work, as well as making props, that's actually dressing scenery. Mm. Can you talk to us a bit about that and how, what, how you approach that? Yeah, I mean, some, a really good example, a show that we did, Bruno, uh, last year, Uncle Vanya, you know, that was a really heavy dressed set. So what I suppose when I started work on that, I would have 
initially started what the, what the company would have needed in, in rehearsals, you know, what the actors need to, to sit on or eat from or initially start with that and then allocate in, within our time scale and our budget an element towards set dressing. Now, it, that incredible set needed a lot of dressing because of the detail that had to go into the room mm. to play the piece. And it was also Russian. So whilst possibly row C onwards wouldn't have been able to see the spines on the on the books, on the bookshelf upstage left, every actor could. We want them to believe that they're in the real space. And to do that, I feel that we've got to um, make it feel as accurate and as real as possible. And it could also be the weight of something. You know, if you've had to make, I think we did a show at the bridge and um, Zoe Wanamaker had to smash a, a glass on stage. And, you know, there's lots of different ways we can do that. And again, it will come down to the, how it's got to smash or how it's got to be cleared up or the budgets available for, to make the prop. What was really important was to make sure that Zoe's glass was was weighty enough, actually. Yeah. Sounds yeah. silly, but, you know, it makes, she took, takes the drink from it. It's also true, isn't it, that actors can get very particular and precise about props. It can get pretty complicated, can't it? Yeah, it can. And um, I like to think that more often than not, I try and see, understand where it's coming from. And I also like to think that I suppose as prop supervisors and, and assistants, you know, when we do get on stage and if an actor is using a prop as a crutch or to maybe hide behind or something because of some kind of insecurity that we can actually navigate it together rather than an actor saying, it needs to do this and that's it and we just go, okay. We try and work out, well, well why? You know, what if what if we do this? Does this make it better? Does this make it easier? Our job is to make it look good, be believable, last as long as it needs to last. And if a prop fails and an actor's not confident, you know, because that prop's failed, it has a huge impact on their performance and then therefore the, the production. So it's a real balance. Yeah. And I would guess as well that y- your position is often like one of mediation between director, designer and actor, because very often those three sets of people can have quite different opinions about mm. what a prop should yeah. be. Also, the other thing, I guess, staying with the actor for a second, your input into costume is is considerable too, isn't it? If, you, if you're responsible for finding accoutrements that work with a costume. Often when I start a show and we're going through the, the props and, and I'll, you know, look through the script initially and, and, and the designs, I always have a little list of questions, you know, is that sort of prop stage management? Is that sort of props costume? And often I'll get on the phone with the costume supervisor for those costume-related questions and we'll sort of go, right, briefcases, who's doing those? And, Mm. You know, I'll say I'll do those umbrellas who's doing those and watches you know all those sort of crossovers and it varies on every show according to the designer you're working with or, or the costume supervisor you're working with so we'll probably navigate that together and then when it when the that prop costume element becomes you know becomes a prop the key for us is to be very aware of the costume designs because it's all very well giving someone a briefcase that you think is absolutely perfect for them. But the minute you put it in with their costume, you're like, oh, hold on, they're wearing, wearing a perfect tail suit and you give them a battered <laughs> old briefcase, exactly. Well, then we'll be interested in looking at the costume designs and working okay. with the supervisor. Since you mention it, I have to ask you, uh, there is often quite a lot of ambiguity about where the responsibility for an item falls. Do you sort of bring your own set of rules to the proceedings to work out? You know, Because often your prop has lighting elements and... I mean, I love it when props have got a lighting element in because it means I have an excuse to go to the most exciting room in the theatre, which is obviously <laughs> the, the props room. 
but yeah, do do you do you have a sort of like a, a set of rules that you apply, like a template to work out really where the the responsibility should lie? I'd never assume is the first thing. If they do assume, I always assume it's going to be on my list because <laughs> that's the way I assume. And I suppose what helps is because I'm such a nerd and I love what I do. I never mind taking it on because I love what I do. And actually, even if I've never done it before, we'll learn along the way or bring someone in that, that can do it. The only time it's it's gets strange or gets hard is when it comes down to budget, you know, and, and I have a real finite budget and it's, it's never enough. You know, we have to work within that. And so when more and more gets comes into the props department, I'm so happy to do it. But if, if I can't afford to do it, it, it can get, it, you know, it's hard. You have to sort of bat it back. What's the strangest thing you've been asked to build or find? Do you know what? I knew you were going to say this. The sad thing is, I don't have an answer. Every single show has something, if not more than something and some things, that's completely surprised you. You know, it can be yeah. something that you think is going to be really straightforward and it can be, turn out to be such a hard thing to, to navigate because, you know, it has to be danced on, but then an actor has to bring it in, so it has to be lightweight, but then it has to light up and then it has to do eight shows a week and, you know, you're asking sometimes on shows for, mm. for, for props to, to do beyond the normal capabilities of things. Every time I do a show, there is something that's been very difficult or very yeah. exciting or very surprising. And so I don't have a strangest or favourite, and I should. My, people can't, I couldn't answer that question in my department either. I think it's it's a hard one because quite often the show you're most in love with is the one you happen to be doing at the time because that's where all your, yeah. all your energy is. Yeah. Yeah. sometimes the most mundane thing um can be one of the most satisfying things because it's been a real problem to solve for whatever particular reason and mm. the big kind of fizzing sparking dramatic moment that everyone notices is perhaps just something that's really easy to do yeah and i like i think also when you're finding or making or having made a prop possibly it's been scripted a certain way but then by the time you get the actors in the room they want it to do a different thing or you you go on such a journey with it you can sometimes get lost along the way and and it starts as one thing then it becomes something else and it's not until it's finally on stage and it performs with it being lit and it being in the right actor's hands or you know we had in in jesus christ superstar at the regents at regents park which is one of my favorite shows of all time <laughs> in the temple we had something like 56 crucifix shaped props in the number and three of them were these little aluminium tube crosses. They were only about, I don't know, 400 mil high. And they had rubber bungs in the top and we filled them with glitter. And the rubber bungs went on and they would dance with them in the, in the scene. And then they'd take the rubber bungs out and pour the glitter over themselves. And it suddenly made what was a fairly normal looking cross on a workshop bench that had been gold leafed a really exciting moment just because with the lights and the sound and the actor in their amazing costume pouring glitter on themselves it suddenly was something completely different can i ask do you, do you have a particular area that fascinates or perhaps a certain time period that you like to work in no i don't think i do no. <laughs> i'm probably getting to a point in my career where i the odd play comes up that i've done before and so sometimes they're a bit of a shortcut because you although the design will be completely different you know the play or and you can anticipate how something might be used. Or I always look out for what I call superhero props. And I focus a lot on something that's going to be heavily used or heavily featured. And so in a play that you've done before or, or even a new play, you know, I look out for those superheroes. 
Um, yeah. And those are what's exciting because you can put so much more energy into those because it's worthwhile. The payoff's good. Um, but I don't know that it's necessarily about period or era. I'll, you know, I think every, every part of it, you know, you can find interest in every part in a very modern play versus, you know, more period piece. Mm. Can we dig a bit more into the process? Where do, you, where do you start? Do you begin with the script or do you wait to meet the designer and see the set model? And- so I'll always start with the script before I want to have a catch up with the designer because otherwise I'm, we're talking about stuff that I don't know what's about to happen or, or, or anything. So I'll start mm. with the script and from the script, because I've read it, I'll make use of, of while I'm reading it, making the process as I go. So um, I'll highlight everything and then end up having read it, understanding the play, understanding the journey that, that we go on throughout, noting any superhero props, you know, like yeah. bars that might have to smash or whatever. Yeah. Um, and having in mind anything that I think, I suppose, naturally in mind anything that I think is I could anticipate being tricky. Mm. Um, so I can get as much information as early as possible on that. Plays and musicals, I start at different times. So if I'm doing a play, I can start about four weeks before we're going to rehearsal. If I'm doing a musical, it's about six months before we're going to rehearsals. So I read the script first and make a, a sort of draft process. And at that point, I'll be ready to meet with the designer if this final design has been submitted. Probably go through the model box or the storyboard and, and chat through every scene. And I don't, I don't particularly worry about it at that point because you can get quite easily overwhelmed because you're thinking, you know, God, there's not much time or oh, I've never heard of that before. How will I do that? Yeah. So I suppose we, I would naturally let it absorb. Mm-hmm. So I read it. I've had my meeting. I, you know, sit, the process evolves, I suppose. It doesn't happen overnight for any of us, I think, creatively. Collaboration with designer is is a kind of key part of the job, isn't it? So those early meetings yeah. must be really important. So how do you get started with your designer? How do you break the ice? A lot of the time, I suppose, you you work with the same designers because once you build that relationship with them, you if it's good, you know, you work again and again. So often yeah. it's a text to, you know, lovely Vicky Mortimer or Simon Higlett saying, hey, do you want to meet for a design meeting? And then we'd meet and probably have a nice coffee in normal times. And <laughs> yeah. it's very relaxed. I suppose it's the new relationships which which are the, the harder ones because you don't know how that designer, you know, are they a texting person? Are they an emailing person? Are they a phoning person? Do they want to come every, you know, do they yeah. want to come around? It, so you, you it's like making a new friend. You know? <laughs> it is, yeah. And so, and you don't, you might not be friends, you know, you might not be lifelong friends at the end of it, hopefully not enemies. Um, but it is, it's like making a new friend and so working each other out and, and you know, being mindful also of other people's workloads. You know, suddenly just because Lizzie Frankel is a prop supervisor on, I don't know, Cinderella, and I need lots of conversations and meetings, it doesn't mean that our designer has got, you know, 100% availability to just be at my beck and call when I want an answer for something or to understand something. So, and, and the same works the other way, you know, that yeah. the designer has to be respectful of, of my time. We're all, you know, essentially we're all freelancers on working non-exclusively on these productions and trying to navigate everything and making sure that you're giving a right amount of time to each production, each designer. And of course, you've got to juggle the demands of the design with the budget from the production manager. When you see what the set design is, is that when you start talking about how much money you've got to spend or do you normally, is it normally set in advance of that? From what I know of the production managers I work with, they've always got a figure set against props, which yeah. they'll very, very rarely reveal what it is until I've costed it. And right. at that point, we look at the discrepancy. Um, it's never, I'm probably never, you know, accurate. You know, if they've got £50,000 in for the show, I'm probably wildly away from that because it's just initially from production manager, it's a figure based on, I suppose, what what seems 
to be the most even split or correct yeah. split for that for that production. So from my side, I'll I'll always cost it after the reading the script and after my initial design meetings, um, way before we go into rehearsals, I'll put mm. a bottom line in and then we see where it sits. And at that point, I'll either have to make some cost saving suggestions or I mean, you know, occasionally the designer will go find that's that's signed off, that's what your budget is. Um, the, the production manager, sorry, but yeah. but more often than not, there's some some navigating to do to to reach a a, a sum of a budget that that will work for the overall production in terms of its value as well. When you've had those conversations and you're into the process, when do people expect you to deliver all the props by? When's your usual? Well, usually, what's the deadline? Normally, it's first day of tech for the finished props because what I don't want to ever do is put too much into the rehearsal room of the actuals because. Mm. By the time you start rehearsals, essentially the budget's spent and it gives them absolutely no flexibility to make a change. You know, if the designer's yeah. got a three-seater sofa upholstered in green on their model box, and then you go and put that three-seater sofa upholstered in green into the rehearsal room, and then they get in there on day one going, oh, actually, we're thinking it better as a two-seater because we need a bit more room to walk around here than we thought. And in blue. And in blue, exactly. So mostly, I would say for 100% of our plays, we put in stand-in rehearsal furniture. Mm. and we're sort of on standby to then go and get the actuals which only then gives you just less than four weeks to to then essentially prop the show right with a musical i try and put most of the actuals into the room because generally i find that with especially with a new musical there's been so much prep from a creative point of view before we go into rehearsals because you can't make it up as you go you can you can do that a bit more with a play and you can have a lot of actor input with a play but with a musical, you have to be so organised. So something like Cinderella that we're working on now, we're building almost every prop complete for first day of rehearsals. Mm. And I'll leave some room for the small props, the hand props. I won't do those because the actors will have some input into those. But the big stuff, you know, the big scenic props um, will be signed off very much like the set is, you know, the set mm. doesn't change too much and those scenic props won't change too much. Yeah, and on that show, the scenic props are effectively part of the set. They're, they're designed as exactly. moving scenery, effectively. So it's unlikely they're going to be massively redesigned. If you've got, a, you know, director and designer and choreographer who are, who are organised and, and have done their, their work ahead of rehearsals, then you'll then find that something moves a certain way. Actually, the designer knowing that, the director, sorry, knowing that in advance will mean that they'll go into the room with confidence to show the actor. Whereas if you if they don't know what they're dealing with and you put something that's incorrect or doesn't move right into rehearsals, then it's it can open all sorts of cans of worms. It must be quite a balancing act as well, isn't it? Because presumably if you have all the finals arrive at tech and yet you've had a rehearsal room full of performers who are getting used to a certain mm. object... Uh, and, and I guess it probably is more significant if you're talking about dance choreography, you know, and that when the interaction is quite specific with an object, if they get used to something that then changes, is that ever a problem? Or is, I, I like to say never a problem, but it's always a thing that comes up. As long as I've been really clear all the way along with whether it's the director or the stage management or the actor themselves, where this is just a stand-in and this is what the real one does, and as the real one's being made or found or developed or whatever, we give that information as soon as we've got it. Mm. That helps, you know, it helps minimise the, the emergencies later on. 
often that's not possible, of course, because you haven't found it. If it's not a made thing, it's a found thing. Yeah. We do often find that you'll, you know, you put something into rehearsals, that, and I try and get something relatively close. You know, if I'm doing a Victorian show and I need a side table, I will try and put a Victorian side table into the show, even if it's not quite the one the designer wants. You know, I try and give them a, a rehearsal room that feels the correct world, certainly the correct sizes. And, but then you get to the stage and you've then gone, great, I've got the real one, the perfect table from the model, you put it in. And at that point, the, you're right, the actor goes, well, hold on, I like the height of the other one. You know, my glass sit on it, you know, when I put my whiskey glass down, I was able to slam it because it was 560 mil high and this one's only 520 mil high. Mm. I want to ask you about rehearsal notes. It's something we've never actually mentioned in this podcast, but rehearsal notes is something that's part of our, well, used to be pretty much part of our daily yeah. lives when rehearsal yeah. actually happened. They um, all filled our inboxes, weren't they? Yeah. <laughs> um, for someone who doesn't know what rehearsal notes are, can you just say what they are and how they're used to communicate things? Yeah. So um, as things develop in the rehearsal room between, let's say, the director and the company with the stage management person, we need to make sure that everything that, they, that they're asking for, whether it's an actor needs a certain prop or they've determined a certain prop needs to be a certain size or weight or what happens to it, so it's getting extracting all that information from the rehearsal room. The stage managers are working with the team in the room into the wider team of the production. Yeah. All those hundreds of people that are working on the production from a, a background point of view. Yeah, and who um, aren't actually in the room at the time. Yeah, yeah, and rehearsal notes will come out, and obviously I'll I'll be looking at the prop section. And sometimes I have to take a, take a deep breath if I open up a rehearsal note <laughs> and there's twenty one points for props that night. Um, <laughs> I mean, typically, lighting is, if anything, it's like one line saying, we think scene three may be at night. And then you'd look down the list of props and it's three pages worth of notes from yeah. teacups to teaspoons to tables to chairs. To... Yeah. And the amount, I mean, when you go into a production meeting, you know, if I walk in, someone like you guys, you know, lighting designer, or the look of sympathy that I get, you know, with, you all right, mate? I'm like, yeah, I'm all right. You know, just because you've seen that week's rehearsal notes and you yeah. can feel the, you can feel the pain. I guess it's because people feel that props are something simple and small that they can, that it doesn't involve much work. Obviously, we've just learned that this is a big mistake, but it is an area that can quickly escalate in both scope and scale during rehearsals. Yeah. So how do you manage that? The more experience I get and, and, and everybody within the team here get, the easier those rehearsal notes become to receive. Because I used to, you know, I'd work on a play musical get rehearsal notes and, and panic and not sleep overnight about the amount of things that have just come up. How am I going to do it? How are we going to do it at the time? How are we going to do it in the budget? How do I say no? How do I, you know, you, you never want to say no ever. There's always got to be a version of it. It might have to be that something else has to give, but you mm. you can't just say no. no. I'm sorry, you can't have that. Sorry, None you can't smoke can. a cigar in that seat. You know, you, <laughs> so I it's think... It's true. I've seen some of those lists are so huge. They must be incredibly intimidating if you're not used to it. Yeah, and it's really overwhelming. And, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, I don't get overwhelmed anymore. I get massively overwhelmed by it, you know, um, especially if, you know, the design, your relationship with the designer is new because you're also not only trying to deliver a, a show, but you're trying to, you know, secure your next job. You're trying to build your build your profile and your contacts as you go. You don't yeah. you want to you want to make more friends so that you can have a better, more varied career. So it is overwhelming. And the biggest feeling is the the, the pressure to deliver. But I think it's about communication because with my experience that I may have where an actor or director or stage manager is asking for something in the room, if, if I know it's not possible, I can't simply go in the room and say, sorry, no. 
so my answer has to be okay so this is physically impossible or this isn't possible within the budget or with the time however how about this or what if we change that or perhaps we could try this as an option so I think it's about quick thinking to to find a solution and that solution might be an alternative or it might have to come down to there isn't the time or the money and, and so in terms of time the best way to to do it is to throw more people at it which costs more money and then when you need the money whether it's because it's a new thing that hasn't been costed or because you're trying to throw more people at it the only people you can go to at that point is producers a lot of that that point comes down to trust because mm-hmm. if the producers trust that you're not simply having a throwaway attitude to that crop because you can't be bothered and that actually it, you know it requires another 200 pounds because of this this and this and I, and they see that you've explored every avenue to get to that point then the answer will either be yes here's some more money because it's coming out of our contingency and it feels worth it or sorry there isn't any more money and hopefully do you need any help explaining that to the creatives or or the actor whoever's asked for it so let's let's say that you've waded through this vast list of props that have come out of the rehearsal room (laughs) and we've reached the first day of tech uh, and of course all the props are delivered on deadline Uh, what happens during the tech for you? I, presumably the process is an extension of the same process because the development still carries on during tech. Exactly, yeah. I mean, the biggest thing is being on site, especially if you're not in London, if you're not you know, near, near where our workshop is, is making sure that you have everything with you. A prop can be made of anything, you know, any material. It can be made with any tool. Our, our on-site kit is extensive. And invariably, you don't have everything because it isn't possible. So you have to make it up as you go along. You have a portable workshop, do you? Essentially, yeah. We have a portable workshop. Generally, we get set up in a bar, which is pleasant. Sometimes they have windows, which is even more pleasant. Um, And we'll lay a floor covering down. We'll set up a couple of trestle tables. As a prop supervisor, I'll probably be based in the actual auditorium. And the prop maker or prop makers will be based in the bar as our prop workshop we'll find, you know, the table that we built doesn't fit through the door. And the last thing you need to worry about is, well, whose fault is it? It's how do we fix it? Mm. Did we build it wrong? Is the door the wrong side? Will we work off the wrong drawing? None of that matters anymore. It's, okay, we're starting tech in 20 minutes. We need the table to fit through the door. Let's go. And so at that point, you spring into action. And and, and also that goes back to what Bruno was saying with the set dressing, you know, we're probably going to the theatre if it's a heavily dressed set, we'll be in the theatre in advance of the tech starting to do the set dressing anyway. So by that point, we've found out where the paint sink is, we've met the master carpenter and, you know, we've familiarised ourselves with the building that we're in, we've set up our workshop. Then the props will come from rehearsals with the company following shortly after and we we adapt as we go. And it might be things that, like we just said, don't fit or it might be notes that we wanted to wait on painting something until we'd seen the lighting, which of course we can't do at any other time until we're in the venue. Sightlines might become apparent for a prop. Um, you know, that table we talked about for salmon your whiskey glass on might suddenly need to go down much lower than 520 mil because of sightlines. Or yeah. so we sort of have to be ready for anything. And that's the that's where it gets exciting for me, I think. The problem solving on site. Yeah, and there's an overlap between what you do in senior cast as well. Quite often you're asked to break down furniture or make the join between a wall and floor look like it's been there for 100 years rather than just arrived yeah. yesterday. And all those sort of details are people you can pull in from your little workshop in the bar to yeah. come and attend to those kind of details. And then there's moments when the rest of the rehearsal goes on a break, when there's this kind of huge scurry of activity. When oh, what, guys... sorry? What was that word, Bruno? 
Um, uh, what? <laughs> we, oh yeah, a break. You don't know what those are. But no, sorry. That, that's what the rest of the company get when you're when you carry on working. It's just a bit quieter yeah. for you. Breaks. They're our best time. Yeah, yeah, because because we get to everything. We you're sort of chomping at the bit, watching a scene happen. You know, teching it and and lighting and sound, putting automation, everything together. And I'm I'm either getting lots of notes from the designer because it's the first time they're seeing it put together, or I'm making my own notes because I'm like, whoa, that was an odd colour that we painted that. That needs to be toned right down or whatever. Now I've seen it. And so you've got your whole list and you're like a coiled spring. You know, yeah. probably by that point, Rachel, who's here, will have run up to the bar to pack the right kit for all the notes that we're going to attack in that one hour that we've got on stage. And then suddenly, Cassie sent them a break. Workers come on and a little props army come from, appear out of nowhere that probably people haven't even seen before with this kit that Rach has packed ready or whatever. And, and we'll hit those notes and invariably be incredibly frustrated as you've got a stage manager going, right, that's 15 minutes still cast back. You're like, no, I need another two hours. <laughs> and do you get involved in, um, in staging problems, solving scene changes, that kind of thing? Where you've got a good stage manager, probably it's led by them mm. and, uh, essentially to collaborate with us to, you know see if it's possible and suddenly we had a table that was was going to be on legs and actually now actually could put it on wheels and, and then I might suggest what if we wheelbarrow it you know it might be a bit more straightforward or so I'll, I'll collaborate on that to make yeah. things e- easier where possible and the nature of your job means you spend a lot of time in lots of different technical rehearsals with different with different um, creative teams can you immediately sense when things are going well or not as a kind of outsider what makes a good tech rehearsal what makes a good tech is communication <laughs> that word again. Like, yeah it yeah. does a good stage manager yeah and and good communication you know and and i suppose you know being mindful you know sonia freeman brilliantly delivers um hampers of food into the auditorium and you know i was saying about emma my partner earlier was had said about um until she worked here not having a clue what really went on to deliver props well in the same vein as a stage manager she used to have no idea what went on in front of the iron from the auditorium side of things from the creative she thought we were just sitting there having a break and eating wagamamas having a laugh (laughs) of course backstage she's working really hard as a stage manager to deliver the scene changes and and you know liaise with flies and and light everybody and out front it just looked like we were sitting back waiting for them to finish bored and that absolutely isn't the case we're furiously you know all working together to, to, to deliver this in, in now what's a finite amount of time yeah mm. safely yeah so do you need to work to a different level of detail when production is being filmed i mean earlier you mentioned that you love the detail to be mm-hmm. perfect for the actors themselves do you feel extra pressure when you know a film's a, a show's going to be filmed Luckily, I think it's, there's not a huge amount of upgrade to do for filming because we always try and make it real anyway. Mm. But if I know a show's being filmed, you know, and T-Live are coming in, I'll, I'd like to go in and just check on the condition of everything, yeah. more from a maintenance point of view, because if the show's been running by that point for a certain amount of time and a bit of bare wood showing through a paint finish or something, I want to make sure that if that might not have been noticed by the team in-house because it wouldn't be noticed in the auditorium, mm. but it would be noticed on camera. So I want to make sure from a maintenance point of view and then the only other place is, you know, sometimes if you've got a newspaper, for instance, and you've printed the perfect front cover that you've manufactured for that period or that story, but the innards are just random newspaper from three days ago, because nobody in the audience sees it, then at that point you want to upgrade uh, some of those detailed finishes so that if it did get caught on camera, 
nobody's going to embarrass themselves, including me. <laughs> yeah, suddenly you've got the problem that instead of the audience all being looking from the auditorium onto the stage, the camera could actually be anywhere looking at it at any angle, which for yeah. all of us is um, sometimes quite a challenge. Scary, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what about special effects? You know, knives, blood bags, guns, exploding exit lights. Um, is that all under your remit as well? Yeah, I mean, as a prop supervisor, I'll always oversee it. It doesn't necessarily mean that at prop works will build it. We might not be specialists enough. For instance, when we did Uncle Vanya and we had um, a fire exit light that had to explode after a gunshot, I had to make sure that we had the right gun, but I hired the right armourer to supply the right gun and then organised the gun session with the stage managers to make sure that our armourer and the gun and the actor and whoever else needs to be involved were in the right place at the right time. The effect was that the, he would shoot at a fire exit light fitting and the light fitting would explode. We actually did make those here because I sort of, we've done that kind of thing before. And so there was a shortcut, I suppose. There, wasn't, there was less R&D to do, um, but we've never made a fire exit light blow up. We have now, but it will never come up again. <laughs> um, and also because I'm already working on the show, I can develop it. You know, I'm, I don't just get given a brief and then I go, there you go, there's 350 light fittings that will explode, one for each show for the rest of its run you know we might do the first five and go oh, that didn't quite work can we improve that and so um but with for instance blood knives you know and, and retractable knives things like that there are, there are you know special effects people that that's what they do and so we'll i'll try and reach out to them to, to supply that for this show yeah. whilst telling them what you know initially i'll i'll read the bit of script that describes what's supposed to happen and then to get them in, engaged i suppose on the production and then by the time we get into rehearsals they'll either come to that bit of rehearsal to sort of see what it needs to do and then develop the prop or I'll film it or have it filmed and send it to them and then in the end sort of hand it over and, and if necessary if it involves multiple departments or an actor being shot or stabbed or something then that person who's made it is best off being there yeah to sort of see it happen and sign it off and we're good to go so you mentioned your company props works a couple of times it's now quite a business can you tell us how you went from an individual prop supervisor to being a company after I left stage management, I worked for Lisa as her assistant for about three years. We, you know, she's the busiest person in town, so was doing everything, you know, every play musical. So I got a huge wealth of experience with her, met a huge, a huge amount of people. And I suppose when I came to a point where I was ready to sort of fly the nest, if you like, and, and try it on my own and become a prop supervisor, I was able to do it because I I was offered two shows at the ENO, which felt fairly intimidating but I, I felt I, you know after I was for a couple of years and working for Lisa's and a props assistant for a few years I was probably ready for from there I suppose after doing those two productions I thought yeah I can actually do this and I found my career this is this is who I am I worked independently which most prop supervisors do initially for the first few months and then I think I was offered a show perhaps it was Little Mermaid in Holland right I had a show in rehearsals in London and I didn't feel I could support the London show if I was over in Holland taking yeah. a show. So I took on my first assistant yeah. that Lisa had with me. You know, I think it's more popular now, but I certainly think at the time when, especially when I was Lisa, Lisa's assistant, it wasn't really a role. It wasn't something recognised, mm. but it's it's critical. You know, I, I can't do my job without assistance. So I employed my first assistant and then from there, because there were then two of us, we were able to grow and continue to grow. 
I worked for I think probably about four years as a prop supervisor, and that that was that was it. You know, Lizzie Frankel, prop supervisor, or Lizzie Props, as I as I was known. Yeah. And then I remember thinking, say I had a chair going into a show, and uh, the chair needed a little bit of carpentry work, not much, just needed a bit of carpentry repair. I'm not a carpenter. I'm handy with a bit of PVA and a clamp, but that's about it. And it also needed, say it was a dining chair, it needed a, a new seat pad. The designer doesn't like the upholstery that's on there, so it needed a new upholstered seat pad. Again, I'm not an upholsterer. And then maybe it was, you know, needed toning down. Maybe the wood was a bit too bright and needed to be washed back or something. I'm not a scenic painter. So all of a sudden that chair has to go to essentially three different people. Mm. And so that chair was doing a lot of air miles from rehearsals to get to all these different workshops or people. It becomes quite an expensive prop for a dining chair. You get to a certain point and think, have I got the wrong dining chair? Yeah. So I remember thinking if I had a workshop on site where freelance prop makers could come and work from, then that chair wouldn't have to go anywhere. The paint, the fabric, the saws would all be here and then the the people, the skilled people could come and do it here. And so I set up on my own in 2010 and probably by about 2015, I took on a second unit at my old studios and opened our first workshop. And it it sort of grew from there. And then the next phase, I suppose, was uh, me and my assistant at the time were doing so much work. So much of our time was spent sourcing, getting rehearsals ready. To source rehearsals cost effectively, it was taking a huge amount of time. And so then we started a, a, a storage unit in the same place in Waterloo where our studios were. And that was essentially so we could, we had a place we could go to to grab a whiskey glass when they want a whiskey glass in, in the rehearsal yeah. room or, or, a, or a dining chair or a television. And um, what also then turned out was, you know, you, if you're opening, in normal times, we, we open about 25 to 30 shows a year. So it's a lot of, kit you know every show's got numerous props and some of those shows are you know limited six or 12 week plays and once you've bought supplied found all those props that show and the show's closing and it's not destined for a future you know it's not destined to go on tour or being sold to another country or whatever it can quite often go in the bin essentially if something was going in the bin and we can save it and store it with a saving stuff from the tip saving stuff from landfill and B, we've then inherited, I suppose, a stock of props that we can then lend very cheaply to a production because we've not paid for it. All we've paid for is the transport and we pay to store it. So as long as it covers our costs, mm. the, the amount we rent it out for, then we just cut our time down. So instead of sourcing the rehearsal props over about four weeks to get them as cheap as possible, we can supply them within a couple of days, which make it much more efficient. Yeah, absolutely. I guess if someone has a whim, you can just pull a version of that out of the store and try it. Exactly. Like, more, you know, walking canes, if we've got a selection of walking canes and if there's two or three mentioned in a script, you know, we can put our selections to rehearsals and chances are an actor might find one that they really want to use, you know, and, and that becomes their walking cane for the show. But if not, it's certainly a good stand-in until we've found them the right perfect one. thing at the perfect height. The per- exactly. Yeah. Lizzie, do you have you have full-time staff, right? It's not just you full-time. Yeah, there's six of us. Yeah, I mean, in normal times, there's three of us essentially in the office, me, Emma and Rachel, and then there's three prop makers with varying skills, with soft prop skills or, or casting and moulding. And then in addition, you, in usual times, we'd bring in extra people either because of the workload or because there was a specialist, you know, certain scenic mm. painting job or... A On a freelance basis. Just, 
exactly yeah. yeah yeah so what's the what's the benefit of having a core full-time staff rather than being a collective of freelancers you often work so many hours under such pressure to deliver you know whether it's as a prop maker or supervisor and assistant you're creating and developing and working stuff out problem solving it's, it's it's tiring you know it's a lot of work and then of course we've taken on like normal times hopefully too many shows so we're working hard and so your relationships with those people are critical and some work and some don't you know and we've been a company um for 11 years it took 10 to get a perfect balance of brilliantly skilled clever people creative people and friends that you know we can also spend 15 hours a day with crying over a prop that hasn't worked and it's due in the room in, in 20 you know in 24 hours mm. and and loyalty you know we don't always work well with everyone and when you find people that you work well with and you've got to spend this amount of time and this amount of pressure with you keep them you know do everything you can to keep them i think it's time to move on to the quick fire round james oh great <laughs> <Hey. Stand by. laughs> strapping are you ready <coughs> what do you like most about your job people plays or musicals or dot 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 oh or dot 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 and it's got to be all both <laughs> i could i wouldn't want to do only one i've got to do both i want to go and have a dance and cry at some as you know i can't dance from the beginning of this podcast i want to go and have a terrible body moving uncoordinated <laughs> bumble to a musical and cry <laughs> there we go that's a new one or i want to go and get completely involved in the detail of a play yeah both i love the phrase an uncoordinated musical bumble I'm that's just, what you're going to call it forever now i'm having that <laughs> <laughs> one day we'll be in a room <laughs> bumbling together bumbling together please <laughs> god <laughs> what's your favorite tool oh i'm gonna say podger because I never use them. I don't know why I said that, but it's because my dog is called Podger and Podger is named after a Podger because of the work we do. But I don't ever use Podgers. It's also one of the finest words in the English lexicon, isn't it? Exactly. Podger. It's, it's great. And can you describe what that tool is for those who've never come across a Podger? It's a spanner. I mean, I don't, I don't actually really even know. We never use them, but it's a spanner <laughs> that scaffolders use. It's true, but increasingly it has a kind of hook end that you can use to wedge and lift stuff. To line up and to line up holes and flats. Yeah, Yeah. spike at one end and a spanner at the other. Whereas our podger has a short nose and big ears. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a favourite light? Favourite light? Yeah. Yeah. What light? Like daylight? Yeah. That works. Great. Great. Daylight. Do you ever get to see it? No, never. Do you know what daylight is? I mean, now, yeah, and not more than normal, but in normal times, daylight? No. What's your favourite colour? Black. Is that, strictly speaking, a colour? Yeah, definitely. It's all I wear. Uh, favourite bit of the process? Ooh, that's a good one. Tech. Yay. Yay. Another, another, another vote for tech. Mm. I think maybe if you asked while I was in a tech, I might not have given you that answer. But as it's been so long since I was in a tech, that's definitely today's answer. That's true. Maybe we're being a bit disingenuous because I can't stand tech. The, f- the first session of tech is the worst bit. But, <laughs> and and I, when it goes okay, then it's the greatest bit. But before yeah. that, it's, it's hard. And yeah. while you're longing for it because you've not been in one for so long, it feels like, yes, get me into tech. Yeah, you're right. You could be right. So what job would you do if the profession went away? 
I couldn't do anything else. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you why I can answer that now, and I probably couldn't have done 12 months ago, is because during all of this, I've had many a panic about our career, my job, everybody else that's here, the future of the industry, all of that. And in one of my wobbles at the kitchen table at my mum's house in the days that we were allowed at our mum's houses, um, I cried at the kitchen table saying I thought of everything else. You know, I thought maybe I should be a dog trainer or a taxi driver or, you know, I'm trying to think of what else I could do as my brother kept saying, you know, your skills are so adaptable and there literally is nothing else I want to do. I've tried, I have tried to think of it all. There's nothing else I want to do or could do. I am definitely born to do this. But do you have a passion outside theatre? No, it's really sad. I mean, I don't watch that much theatre, but I like working on theatre. But that is my my personal life with my partner and my dog and my home and my family and theatre are my life. I don't know if that makes me sound really sad, but I get enough from theatre, I think. I get the social aspect, I get the, you know, I get the creative aspect, I get challenged. So it's so fulfilling. That's a good answer. Can you name a show that was an influence on you? Probably Ghost the Musical. And I can't really explain why, but I it was it was probably a, because I worked on it. I was assistant on it the first time it, it was in the West End. And it was probably because of my journey on it that it was so influential to me. I probably learned the most about myself doing that show. I also loved the show. Right. Like I adored it. Ghost, that's the Patrick Swayze Demi Moore. Yeah thing isn't it yeah. yeah and it was on oh the, the clay the clay did you the do the clay, clay? yeah can you, can you of course we did did you, did you have to do the clay <laughs> i had to find the make the pottery wheel it was Amazing. excellent oh, <laughs> what do you need to be better at i need to stop worrying so much about what people think and be honest and open and confident but i'm so particularly now i'm so worried about people that i i overcompensate I want everybody to be happy and I know that everybody can't be happy all the time and I certainly can't make everybody happy all the time but I'm so sad when I can't. Do you have um, tech rehearsal must-haves? If you had a rider to get you through the tech, what would be on it? Good food. Like I think I said earlier when, you know, in a tech, SFP, really look after you with a hamper and Mm. it sounds sounds like a tiny thing because you've just got a hamper filled with satsumas and popcorn but it makes a huge difference when you're when you're running on empty and we don't have things called breaks to be able to walk past a hamper and pick a satsuma and everything feels all right. (laughs) It's also a good chance for a little conversation, isn't it? Just gathering around the hampers, picking a satsuma. Yeah, especially um, if the hampers are the lighting board, you know, you get to stop by and say hello. and and It's a a nice moment in the day. So imagine, if you will, a world where these things called pubs exist and the three of us could be sat around a table James is on his way to the bar. He's staggering slightly because he and I have been here for a while. I wish. <laughs> well, a pint of sparkling water. I don't drink alcohol. I like sparkling water, but a pint of sparkling water with some ice and a fresh lime, please. Preferably a straw because otherwise my teeth will get too sensitive. You're a detail person, and this is very clear, <laughs> even from your drinks order. <laughs> sorry. sorry about it, everyone. <laughs> I very much hope that we can buy you that pint of fizzy water very soon. Thank you so much. Thank you for having Lizzie, me. Thank you. You've been brilliant. Yeah, thank lovely you. talking to you. I'll see you all soon. Thank you once again to Lizzie for giving up her time to talk to us. 
The Making Theatre podcast is compiled, produced and edited by Bruno Poet and myself, James Farncombe. As ever, if you have any questions, comments or even ideas for future episodes, you can contact us on Instagram or Twitter at makingtheatrefm or if you prefer, by email on makingtheatrepodcast at gmail.com. We are doing this for fun and also hopefully to contribute to a broader awareness of everyone's role in the industry. So we do all the hard work. All you have to do is spread the word and take a moment to leave us a glowing review on your favourite podcast platform. Seems like a pretty good deal to me and we'll be very grateful. Until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.